My name is Jeff Harbach. I'm the CEO of Coffin Fellows and an MBA graduate of the University of Texas at Austin. The Latter-day Saint MBA Society was founded by a group of MBA students and alumni who are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints with the hope of bringing together a community of business people striving to bless the world. In this podcast, we'll hear interviews with Latter-day Saint thought leaders that we hope will inspire you both in your professional and spiritual life. For more information about the Latter-day Saint MBA Society, visit latterdaysaintmba.com. And I'll pass it over to Kurt Frankum, who will host this week's interview. Hello, everyone. This is Kurt Frankum, the host of the Latter-day Saint MBA podcast. This week, we'd like to share one of the sessions from a past conference of the Latter-day Saint MBA Society. This session was an interview with Senator Mitt Romney, conducted by Christopher Gong. Senator Romney, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. How are you and where are you joining us from? Thanks, Christopher. Good to be with you. And I'm in my office in Washington, D.C. Great. We've pulled together a list of questions from current LDS MBA students from across the country, and we're excited to hear from you. Do you mind if we jump right in? You bet. Great. In a previous interview, you mentioned that you maintain a work-life balance by reserving evenings and Sundays for your family and for church service. And that's a lot easier said than done. Many of us are about to start new jobs, and we're wondering if you have any suggestions for how to set those boundaries with our new managers. You know, uh, the ability that you have to uh, influence your work environment um, uh, it, it grows as uh, your, if you will, your your strength in the organization grows, <laughs> your and your negotiating leverage grows. Uh, so when I first started out at the Boston Consulting Group, uh, I was an entry level consultant, and I did what I was told to do. Uh, you know, I, I worked almost seven days a week. I worked a lot of evenings. Uh, you know, it was just the way it was. Um, and then I got recruited to go to a different firm, Bain and Company. And, uh, and so when I met with Bill Bain, I said, look, if I'm going to consider this change of employment, uh, there are a couple of things you need to know. One is I need my Sunday off. Uh, and, uh, if there's a, a critical client need, why, of course, I'll, I'll jump in. But by and large, my Sundays are going to be off. And then I have a responsibility on Wednesday evenings. I'll probably try and be home Wednesday evenings. And, and he said, okay, we can accommodate that. Now, if I'd have said that at the very beginning at the first job interview uh, at the Boston Consulting Group, BCG, they, they probably would have laughed. Uh, but, uh, but, but, you know, as your, uh, if you will, your, your equity grows uh, while you're able to have more influence. But I can tell you that I think it's extraordinarily helpful uh, if you can possibly be able to keep the Sabbath day for your family uh, for yourself, for your faith, uh, and, uh, and also that when you come home at the end of the day, uh, that you put the computer aside, you put the iPad and the iPhone aside, and you, you try and focus on, on your family. Now, those of you that are single, uh, you, know, I, I, you don't need to focus on the family when you come home. But for those that are married, I'd say uh, devote your time to your spouse and to your kids when you're at home. Thank you. During COVID, many of us have found that some days it's been difficult to stay motivated and productive. Uh, is that something you've ever struggled with? And how do you think about setting goals and what do you do to make sure that you accomplish them? Uh, you know, I, I don't think I've ever had a, a challenge trying to stay focused or, or, or productive. Uh, and maybe that's because I'm just scared to death. I'm always worried that I'm not going to do a good job, that I'm going to get fired that my presentation will not be as good as it ought to be. I'm just a high stress guy. And, and, uh, it's a, you know, the type a, if you will. 
And, and, and my problem was not getting myself motivated or focused. It was unplugging from time to time and saying, I, I can't, I can't work all the time. I can't work every single hour. I can't, when I was in school, I can't be in the library all the time in the stacks, you know, in some little carol uh, studying. I, I've got to, I've got to balance my life uh, to include other things that I also care about. Um, so I'm not very good at giving that advice. I, I, I and so I'm, I'm going to have to let other people who are better at saying, how do you focus uh, than myself? Because that's not something that's been a, a real challenge for me. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned stress. I enjoyed watching the documentary about your presidential campaigns. I found it very moving. And I'd love to hear what you do to deal with stress and perhaps what advice you might have for those of us who are facing disappointments or who might feel like we've filled at something that's important to us. Well, I, I think I'd start off by noting that uh, much of what happens in a secular career is out of your control. Uh, there are just uh, the things that are going to happen uh, with regards to promotions or pay uh, or the success of the enterprise you're working in that that are unpredictable uh, and where you couldn't have uh, you know made the uh, d defining difference. And that's just the nature of of life in a world like the world we live in. It's the same thing with your health. You can't predict whether there's going to be a major health event in your life that will dramatically change your life. It's out of your control. And that's true in business and in politics. Uh, and, and so if you, uh, if you anticipate that everything is going to go swimmingly, well, you're going to be disappointed because there will be things that, that, that completely surprise you. Uh, so I, I guess that's part number one, which is don't put all the burden on yourself. Part number two is, yeah, but always try and take responsibility for being successful and doing your very, very best. But, that, but then number three, when things happen that, that are disappointing, uh, you have to stop and say, okay, what's most important to me? And, and I think it's critical that you recognize that it's important to define your success in your own mind, not by things that are out of your control, meaning your career, but instead by things that are in your control, your relationship with our Heavenly Father, uh, your relationship with, uh, with your spouse, if you're married, and your kids, uh, your relationship with your friends. I have found close friends to be um, one of the most critical elements in my life. I, I really do believe that the currency in life is the people you love and the friends that you have. And, uh, and if you want to have real richness, those are things to concentrate on. So I, I think lowering the stress level can be done by making sure you, you focus on in your own mind on the things that really matter most to you. Thank you. I uh, would love to hear just a little bit about how your church leadership experiences have helped you in both your, your public life and your private life. I, I think the, the, uh, uh, the church leadership experiences uh, were most helpful to me in watching other people and seeing how they led. So I, I have served as a counselor numerous times. I've, I've been uh, in a position where I'm watching other people lead and serve. Of course, as a member of a congregation, I watch and see how the bishop is doing and how the counselors are doing and the elders quorum president and so forth. And, and you learn from watching others. I mean, I watched my, my dad lead uh, as a young boy. I used to go with him from time to time to his office. And, and that ultimately shaped my own leadership experience. And, and in some ways, in a subconscious way, other, others very consciously. Uh, ultimately, I became the, the leader myself and would, uh, in some respects, uh, copy things I had seen from others. 
but clearly you learn from the mistakes that you make uh, and people, good people who are your friends will tell you about the mistakes that, that you made. And, uh, and as a leader now, and then that'll happen. People will say, Hey, you know, you should have done this better. Or have you thought about thanking people in a way that, that is, is distinct from the way you're doing it? Uh, th- those things I think have basically translate. I mean, I'm the same person, whether I'm in a church leadership position or I'm in a Senate leadership position. Um, I, you know, I, I don't, uh, I don't manage things in a different way. You've been a successful leader in many different areas, and you mentioned leadership skills are transferable. Are there other specific skills that have been helpful for you as you have moved between uh, different types of roles in your career? Uh, you know, I, I do believe that um, uh, that it's important to recognize that even though your secular life and your religious life and family life are are different, uh, that the the values that are at the foundation of your life are the same. Uh, I, I do recall when, when I worked at Bain uh, some years ago, uh, uh, Bill Bain brought in a group of psychologists to, to help us deal with uh, the, 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 the unity within our organization. And at one point, one of them said, look, uh, you should only live in accordance with your, uh, your most fundamental values. And he said, if you don't, well, you're going to have a high degree of stress in your life. And it's like, well, how do you know what your core values are? And he said, it's very simple. He said, each one of you, I want you to write down the names of the five people who've ever lived that you admire most. And, and I don't recall precisely who I wrote down, but I think I wrote down, of course, Jesus Christ, Joseph Smith. I wrote down my dad, my wife, uh, so I, you know, my baby Abraham Lincoln. Then he said, next to each name, write three characteristics that immediately come to mind when you think of that person. And so with the Savior, you think of love and service. And so I wrote three for each of those five individuals. And then he said, now look at that list of 15 items and circle the ones that have been mentioned the most. Maybe circle two or three. And they happen to be service and love were two of the three. I don't recall the third. Uh, and, uh, and he said, those are your core values. And he said, if you're living in a way consistent with those values in your work, as well as in your other dimensions of life, your stress level will be a lot lower and you will have a much greater degree of, of, of achievement and accomplishment. Um, I, I can't tell you 100% whether that's true, but it really helped reorient, I think, a lot of people in the organization where I was working and it helped me as well. Thank you. Speaking of values, many of the people who are attending this conference wrote questions about how to stand for our values or advocate for our values. Uh, without appearing or being intolerant. I'd love your thoughts if you have any suggestions for how to do that well. You know, um, I, I don't know that I am the model in this regard uh, because I live my, uh, my faith as well as I can in my professional life. And, uh, I, I, but I don't talk to people about it. Now, my good former friend, he's passed away, Clayton Christensen, took a much more aggressive approach uh, than I did, and and achieved great things by bringing many people into the church. Uh, I've been less successful in that regard, uh, but I note that that people around me don't swear. Uh, if they come to my home, they wonder whether they're able to bring a drink or not. Um, uh, interestingly, in, in the organization where I uh, I spent a good deal of my, my career, Bain Capital, the the group of maybe ten that got started at the very beginning of Bain Capital. Um, 
I, I didn't talk to them about what a pleasure it was to have a family, but I think all of them have lots of kids. Now, I was the oldest guy. I had five kids when I started Bank Capital. They were young guys just getting started, get started in their careers. But I think all of them, uh, and there's no other LDS guy except Bob Gay, and he came a little later, but virtually all of them have four, five, six, seven kids. And I think they just saw that, hey, you know, Mitt has a bunch of kids. He's happy. I can see that that's something that I would enjoy. And uh, so in, in some respects, uh, how you live your life in the work setting will influence others. I have had a couple of people ask me if they could learn more about the church and one actually joined, uh, but I did not make it a, an explicit overt um, uh, part of my, my business career. And, uh, uh, but if you want to make that a part of your career, as Clayton Christensen did, I'd, uh, I'd read his books. He'll give you a good idea about how to do it. <laughs> you mentioned your time at BCG and Bain and Bain Capital. You've worked on a number of complex problems ranging from the Olympics to healthcare. I'd be curious to hear a little bit about the steps you take when you're facing a new complex problem and perhaps the problem that you're working on now and how you've approached it. You know, the, the uh, as I would take on a, a, a very challenging uh, strategic issue of some kind, um, I, I can't help myself. Like most people, uh, I, I begin to think about what the answer is uh, from the very beginning, what I think I do differently. Uh, and, and I might, you know, talk back and forth with my friends that are also working on the project and say, hey, what do you think? And, and you, just, you just can't resist uh, when you hear about a problem, jump into a conclusion as to what you think the answer is. But after the, the, you know, the few hours or the couple of days when you've done that, you put that aside and you say, okay, let's gather the actual data. Let's learn what we need to learn to, to determine what the real challenge is and what the solution might be. Uh, my friend Daryl Rigby, who is a uh, partner at, at, uh, at Bain and Company, he said, you say to yourself, what's the data? If I could get any data I, I could possibly want that would help me solve this problem, what data would that be? And then he said, then go get that data. And it's like, wait, wait, wait. You can't get all the data you want to get. And he said, oh, yes, you can. With enough work, you can get all the data that you need, or you can get close enough to the data that you need. Uh, by virtue of piecing things together uh, to figure out what you need to, to understand. So uh, that was good advice. Figure out you know, what's the data I would really want to have and then go get it. And, and the big part of consulting in, 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 during my career was gathering data, actually pulling together the facts that you need to understand what's really going on. We call that a, a strategic audit, which is a look at every dimension of the problem from every angle that you possibly can and lay out how things exactly are, what's happening, what's right, what's wrong, lay it all out. And from that begin to develop the, the if you will, the hypotheses about what you might do to, to solve the problem. And the, the, you ask what's the challenge I'm working on now it relates to China. How do we deal as a nation with China's uh, uh, attempt to become the global um, uh, hegemonic power to lead the world and and what influence would that have on freedom uh, and on the prosperity of the people of the world? Many people are trying to understand what the relationship might between China and the U.S. might look like in the future. Do you have any thoughts for how to make that the most productive possible relationship? Yeah, I think I think China is intent on, on replacing us, uh, conquering us militarily, economically, and geopolitically. I don't think necessarily through a war, 
but I think they they would want to have, uh, if you will, the dominant power, certainly in the Pacific and ultimately in the world, militarily, as well as economically and geopolitically. Uh, they, they plan to replace us. We have been the, if you will, the superpower, the hyperpower, following the, the collapse of the Iron Curtain, and, and they want to assume that position. Uh, I think they would look for an authoritarian world uh, where they basically dictate to the, the world what the conditions are for economic trade uh, and the like. And uh, so that's a, a pretty frightening <laughs> objective on their part. And my view is that the, the nations of uh, the rest of the world, the West, democratic nations, uh, nations that follow the rule of law, uh, that those nations need to come together and say, wait a second, what are the rules going to be? Uh, that we're going to live by, and we would have to deny to chi China the right to uh, have access to our markets if they don't play by those rules. And it is my hope that if we're successful in doing that as a group of ourselves coming together and, and developing those rules, that, uh, that China would be uh, dissuaded uh, from a course of confrontation and instead uh, play a more uh, collaborative, competitive role uh, in the geopolitical marketplace. In your 2010 book, No Apologies, you outline many of the key issues for America's long-term competitiveness, including China. Uh, if you were rewriting that book today, what might be the same and what might be different? Well, certainly, uh, Russia continues to be a challenge. Um, uh, and, and I noted in that book that it was the uh, uh, geopolitical adversary that we faced, in, in part because Russia basically opposed it, every action we would take at the UN. Uh, they support all the world's worst actors from Kim Jong-un uh, to, to uh, Maduro of Venezuela and so forth. Uh, but, but Russia is a declining power. Uh, their population is declining. Uh, they really don't make anything that the world wants to buy other than the weaponry. And, um, uh, and so th th their impact on the geopolitical stage, the economic stage is going to wane over time. Uh, they're still obviously relevant. They, they try and maintain their relevance by building a nuclear arsenal, second to none. Uh, and they have made massive investment in their nuclear arsenal and, are, and, and I presume have far more warheads, uh, if not intercontinental, at least on a tactical basis, than even that we do. So, um, uh, but, the, but the bigger challenge is China. Uh, China, because they will have a much bigger economy than ours someday. I mean, an economy, by the way, is a function of output per worker. They have a lot more workers and their output per person is going up and up and up. So they will have a large economy someday. They will have the capacity to build a bigger military than we do, just given the scale of their economy. Uh, so larger economy, larger military, uh, they represent a, a dramatic challenge. And given the fact that their leadership is intent on, on repressing their own people with censorship and, and, and social scoring and monitoring, uh, and on promoting authoritarianism throughout the world, uh, they represent a real threat. So uh, were I writing the book today, I would be writing a lot more about China than I did then. Thank you. Um, the Republican Party has changed dramatically over the last decade, and there are currently many different voices in the party, both for domestic and international issues. What vision do you think the Republican Party should embrace for its future and for the future of the country? Well, I think some of the, the foundations of the Republican Party uh, and conservatism generally are, are best for America and for the world, for that matter, and for the cause of freedom. Uh, and, uh, and so uh, 
Now, what the policies might look like will we'll change from time to time, but the foundation, if you will, the foundational principles, I think, uh, uh, remain the same, which is, uh, number one, that we do remain involved in the world. Uh, we're, and, and, and we're involved in the world because we know if we're not involved in the world, uh, bad things that can happen that suck us into them uh, that will make us poorer and potentially have less freedom. So we, we're going to be involved in the world. That doesn't mean we're going to go around fighting wars everywhere, but we're going to try and influence world events and encourage people to move towards freedom and democracy. By the way, there's been a 15-year decline in freedom in the world. So we're not winning, uh, but we need to be involved in the world. Uh, number two, that, that we need to be strong, that we need to have a strong economy, strong military, strong alliances. Uh, because American strength is good for us and I think uh, good for the world. I'd say also that we are a party that believes in um, character, that we want to see uh, leaders, not only in government, but in other spheres of influence, uh, that are people of character. We believe that character does make a difference, uh, and, and that's something that we, we value. Uh, next, I'd say that we believe in maintaining our, uh, if you will, our fiscal strength, meaning that the the, our, our, our balance sheet strength. So we don't want to have too much debt that would put us in peril, just like a, a family that has too much debt. If a country has way too much debt, uh, then its uh, range of action is dramatically limited. Uh, if it needs to invest in a, well, in a pandemic, as we've just done, or uh, invest in perhaps a, a military uh, strength so that we uh, can keep people from doing bad things to us, you want to have that flexibility. So those are some of the fundamental principles of our party. Uh, I, I think some people question those principles today, uh, uh, but I think they happen to be the right ones. Many admired your statement on Trump's impeachment. When do you know when to stand with the team and when to be uncompromising in your values? Um, you know, it, it's uh, pretty straightforward in, in a setting like impeachment where, where, uh, having already sworn an oath to defend the Constitution as a senator, we were required to swear an additional oath when the impeachment trial occurred. And the Chief Justice of the United States in the first case, and then the President Pro Tem in the second case, administered a new oath of office where we swore to apply impartial justice, so help us God. And uh, at that point, when you swear to apply impartial justice, that suggests that you're not going to be partial to a team or a party or even a personal relationship. It's impartial. And you're going to try and do what is, what is in your judgment, the right thing. Uh, so for me, that's pretty straightforward. That in a circumstance like that, you are, uh, you're swearing before God to put uh, your, your conscience uh, and what you think is right above all, above all else. There are other circumstances where, where you say, let's say on a policy matter, which is, uh, should we uh, adjust a, uh, a, a tax, for instance, uh, you say, okay, uh, you know, I don't like that tax, but I do like what our, our group of people is doing generally. So I'm going to work with them on this one and help them on this one, even though I don't like it very much. It's not a matter of principle. I just don't like it much. Uh, and because I think in the long run, we can work together on something I like better. I mean, that, that's the nature of, of saying, how do you, how do you get things done that, that conforms with what your, your view would be? I mean, you don't want to be oppositional on everything that you have any disagreement with. There are some people, by the way, that, that want to fight every single thing they don't agree with 100%. Uh, they don't get much done. Uh, so I, I look to see, are there, you know, do I, can I agree with elements uh, in a proposal? If I do, uh, 
Uh, and, and if our group wants to do it, and I think that our group or our party uh, has some uh, prospects that will be better for the American people, why that's something I'm going to consider. Senator, thank you so much for your time. We'd like to, for our final question, I'd love to know, as you think about your career, we'd love to hear a little bit about perhaps what you're most proud of or anything you might do differently. Maybe to borrow the question from Clayton Christensen, who you mentioned, uh, how do you think about measuring your life? Uh, you know, uh, the most important thing in my life is my relationship to God and my relationship with my wife. And uh, the former, my relationship with my Father in Heaven, uh, takes work. Uh, and uh, and that means prayer and uh, and it means uh, service uh, and and scripture study and and some of those things I do better than others. Um, the relationship that's also critical to me, my relationship with my wife, uh, has frankly been extraordinarily natural. Uh, I would rather be with Anne than than any other person or do or any other thing. I mean, there's nothing I'd rather be or do than to be with my wife, and that just comes naturally. So I'm with her as much of the time as I can possibly be. I know for other people, marriage is a, uh, a more studied uh, effort. And, uh, uh, and so I salute those, but, but uh, my relationship with my wife is, is very, very good. Uh, next, my relationship with my kids is most important. And I'm really pleased that uh, I love my kids. My kids love me. Uh, I have 25 grandkids. I love them dearly. I believe they love me as well. Uh, and so, uh, frankly, how I measure my life is, uh, is associated with my relationship with my Father in Heaven, with my wife and family, and with my friends. And uh, finally, I, I do have a number of really good friends. I, I make an effort to connect with them as, as often as I can, not as much as I'd like. But that's really, if you look at my personal balance sheet, those are the, those are the big assets. Um, uh, the, uh, the career I've had, uh, I, I just want to be able to say uh, that, that I did my best, uh, that um, that I followed my conscience, that I didn't do things that I felt were uh, dishonorable or untruthful. Uh, and as long as I feel good about those things, I feel great. Uh, frankly, uh, uh, success, there's no question. I can't escape the fact that, that uh, being successful in business and in politics makes you feel good. There's no question about that. That's just the nature of the society we live in. But as I step back and look at my life and I think about, you know, what it's going to be like when I have a terminal disease or when I'm getting prepared to meet my maker, uh, the, the successes I've had, uh, you know, in, in, in business or in uh, uh, financial matters or, or in politics will, uh, will pale in comparison with, with those other items that I mentioned first. Thank you so much for that perspective. Uh, we've really appreciated your time today and we'll let you get back to your other responsibilities. Thanks, Christopher. All the best to you and to all that have joined us today. Thank you for listening to the Latter-day Saint MBA podcast. Check out the show notes for more information about our guests and visit latterdaysaintmba.com to find details about the Latter-day Saint MBA Society.